I'm Matt Booker. I'm Dave Laird. I'm Diego Baez, and rappers are Miltonic Devils. And I'm Andrea Lawrence L. Sheridan, and I'm about to embark on a brief interview with hideous men in the Great Concavity. didn't fuck it up. <laughs> <laughs> so welcome, welcome. Welcome with thank you for your slightly accusatory suggestive <laughs> intro. Andrea, that's great. Uh and welcome Diego as well to episode 37 of The Great Concavity. It's fantastic to have you guys uh on the show. Welcome. Thank you yeah, for having thank us. You. Thanks. Thanks thanks for taking the time. Uh this is kind of uh we've started to begin the series Matt, of having like dual guest episodes over the last few times. So we're just continuing yeah, on with new, that tradition here, you know? Yeah, this is new territory, but it's it feels good. Yeah, it does. The Skype, uh, setting up Skype's a little tougher than usual, but it's fine. Uh, we're, we're making it work. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Cool. So, friends, welcome. Um, Diego, you and I have hung out at, at some of the conferences at ISU before. Andrea, I still haven't met you in real life before, <laughs> but, uh, of course, you guys are both on the diversity committee uh, specifically as coordinators of the international david foster wallace society of which of course our own matt booker here is is the prez and uh i'm a i'm a chairperson on it um so we've had lots of uh fun google hangouts with you guys talking about stuff related to the committee and and of course specifically diversity which is why we have you guys on the show to discuss that in the context of you know what the society's doing and and in the larger context of wallace's work and writing so welcome welcome to that yeah. um andrea do you want to run us through a little bit of your your bio uh tell us about what you do who you are and then diego and then we'll we'll jump into some into some topics sure um i currently teach uh anything they want me to teach at orange county community college <laughs> it's one of the um suny community colleges in new york state um, I don't know why I said New York State. Um, I most, Not California, not, though. Not, not, not Orange County, Orange California, County. or Florida. Uh, so it is cold, um, and we have been marred by snow days this semester, but um, mm. I will never cut Wallace. <laughs> I will cut poetry before I will cut Wallace. Oh, no. <laughs> um, no, because we can, we can get poet. through them faster. It's fine. Um <laughs> But I actually never um, studied Wallace as a student before mm. I started teaching him. So I didn't know if I was like missing something. Um, but he was always sort of this polarizing uh, topic in classes, almost like Sylvia Plath was when I was in college, um, that everybody either really, really, really loved him or hated him. And last semester, I actually had one student come up to me and say, I love, I, I hate how much I love him. Like, <laughs> yeah, that's pretty much how it goes. Um, so that's actually an interesting starting point for the conversation we're about yeah, to have, I think. Yeah, that's actually what mm-hmm. I called kinda... my, um, presentation for this year's conference. Oh, really? Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, cool. Um, and I, I created like an entire research paper assignment around it for that class because she was very, very right. Um, because mm. they, they, they read Forever Overhead, which is like that nice little, well, aside from the first couple pages, yeah. but that, that nice little coming of age story. And then I have them read a lot of the brief interviews with hideous men. And then they, 
they don't like me so much and they get uncomfortable, but I make them talk <laughs> about it anyway. Um, but I, the, the first time I was a student um, reading Wallace was with Mary Holland in a class at mm. SUNY New Paltz in 2013. Oh, wow. um, and I ended up enrolling and getting a second master's degree because of that class. Uh, and it was the worst grade mm. I got the whole time I was at SUNY New Paltz. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it wasn't a bad grade, but um, and I ended up writing my thesis with her as well. Um, oh, cool. So I took I actually took half of my classes at, in that program with her. Um, oh, wow. So I, re- I did a lot with Wallace in that program. Um, and <laughs> now uh, nobody asks me at work anymore why I bother teaching him because there's a society. So I guess that counts for something. Yeah. So thanks. <laughs> <laughs> We've legitimized yeah. Wallace's yeah. place in the academy. Although now. Yeah. Um, I did just find out you can join the Edgar Allan Poe Society for $2. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the Don DeLillo Society's free, so that's, that's cool yeah. too. <laughs> I'm on that. <laughs> so I don't know if that's that's enough of a history, but that's that's my yeah. thing. Yeah, that's great. <clears throat> awesome. You're also a frequent contributor on Hyper Reality. Tell us a bit about um, that. I was, and then um, uh, okay. I kind of got sick. But last sem- last semester, um, right around when Saturday Night Live got a little bit too real. I started getting um, (laughs) inspired, and it's a website blog that a friend of mine runs, and I was, I had, like, all these theories about satire and sincerity and all these Mm -hmm. sorts of things, so anything that I, I kind of became the resident Saturday Night Live examiner, and I was, like, deconstructing (sighs) Saturday Night Live, and then it just got too scary, so I couldn't do it anymore. Um, I, I, I can't watch the news. I can't do it. <laughs> That's pretty, pretty fair. I think these days. Yeah, yeah. But it's, it's a, it's a fun blog, uh, website that, that we have both abandoned a little bit because we don't want to look at things like that. Hmm. Fair enough. <laughs> cool. I'd, rather, I'd rather read fiction. And, it's less and, scary. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> depend depends who's fiction, I guess. But yeah. and more believable too. Yeah, I yeah, I watched right. American Horror Story. That was much less terrifying. <laughs> <laughs> Reasonable. And Diego, how about you? What's yeah, your, what's your scene, man? Yeah, so I was actually um, born in Bloomington and grew up in Normal. I went to high school and right, school yeah. in Normal. And the, yeah, the only reason I include that is because it was so it was so fun and surreal coming back for the first conference at ISU and being simultaneously excited and it's my my home stomping grounds and then also a little confused that the university itself wasn't or hasn't or hadn't capitalized more on on DFW's presence there. Uh, so it was exciting to like see all these people come together and all that. Uh, when I was growing up, I mean, in high school, uh, Wallace was teaching. He was kind of ending his time at ISU. I think it was it was after Infinite Jest had come out and he sort of toured for that. And then before he moved out to California. And so hmm. I didn't have any exposure to him. Weirdly, <laughs> I there was a student at my high school named David Foster and you know no relation or anything like that and it's not even a wallacean coincidence it's just a weird <laughs> coincidence but a connected the name with this author and i did actually did a report on david foster wallace without really understanding who he was or what he's all about you know i was like 16 so i didn't really know what i was doing 
But then I also, like you, uh, Andrea, I didn't really come across Wallace in just my casual reading or anything, or even in school. It wasn't until grad school. Um, and I went to grad school in Newark, in New Jersey, at Rutgers, and in a poetry mm-hmm. workshop, a, my professor, Rachel Hadas, mentioned it. it was the day that he killed himself. And, and she kind of announced the news. And, you know, I knew who he was just, you know, he had a reputation. He was sort of a, a sort of a pop culture figure, sort of, at that point. Yeah, right. yeah. And that was, well, you know, morbidly, that's what spurred my, my interest. And mm. so I started, I started, the first thing I read was the Kenyan commencement speech and started teaching it. I read it and then like taught it the next day in my remedial English <laughs> class. Um, and then cool. I just, I just kept reading. I just kept reading it. And now here I am and teaching here in Chicago. I've lived here back in Chicago for like, oh God, like six, seven years now. And I'm writing, I'm a poet. So that's cool. You know, yeah, cool. <laughs> and you're working on a novel right now as well. Well, I just finished my poetry manuscript, and right. try, like sending out to contests and stuff, trying to get that out there in the world. And, and yeah. I, which I've actually read from that at the second DFW conference, which was cool. Oh right, yeah, yeah. I was there for that. I was <laughs> yeah, in the room really well. And yeah, and yeah now I want to switch it up, work on some fiction. I've been sort of writing a little bit of fiction here and there, but I really want to buckle down and like do this time travel novel that I've had that i've been thinking about for so long and yet still can't even explain well i was at a wedding this week and i was trying to give my like elevator pitch version of it and i just couldn't i just couldn't so i need to really like get that nailed down <laughs> all right cool <laughs> so diego that you mentioned that second conference is an interesting um point in the in the history of it for me because i mean for one that's where dave and i met mm-hmm. uh but it was all, you know, mm. your perspective of seeing mm. kind of the Wallace community um, formalize itself at those conferences is interesting because, you know, I, my perspective is a little bit different. And, you know, I, I don't consider myself mm. an academic. I'm not in the academic world. I don't have a grad degree. I'm not really an academic. My, my huh. background really <laughs> is starting my career in book publishing. Um, and so coming coming at it from that, I felt like there was a lot of there were a lot of issues that would come up and I met tons of new people at the first conference and the second conference. And, you know, we're going into like what the fifth year of it now. Um, and so it's a little more formalized and organized and people know each other and, um, you know, kind of mm-hmm. know what mm-hmm. to expect. Mm-hmm. Um, but. I felt like at the second conference, one of the biggest issues to me was this issue about, um, you know, having kind of non-academic people even at a college campus. <laughs> like <conference>. Yeah, <laughs> and uh, that was something I was very interested in. Although I got to say, at the first conference, I met a ton of people who were new scholars you know it was the first conference they have ever been to and so they didn't feel like part of any establishment either and they were writing on a lot of wildly different topics and all through all these topics there were a lot of not a lot but there were a lot of different Mm -hmm. you know approaches to literature and 
things that you know, mm. I would not have found out otherwise. And I feel mm. like, I guess where I'm going with this is that I feel like now that mm. issue that I was concerned with in 2014, 2015 is a little less important or it seems a little yeah. settled. And, you know, as soon as we launched the, the David Foster Wallace society and uh, a little over a year ago, um, it was immediately clear that the issues that we mm. would have to deal with right off the bat would have to be like, is it all white dudes? <laughs> do you know, huh. with, with, do you know? Be- with beards of varying lengths do you know and it's like the, the one it's a it's a, a question of like representation and we were audacious i think enough to put our pictures on the website which <laughs> is, uh, o- opens yourself up to a level of scrutiny um and attention and then also i think it's a legit concern because uh you know my experience of being in on online Wallace community and then in the real world Wallace community was that there were in fact a lot of women involved yeah. and that it was maybe truly a misrepresentation. Um, and so we wanted to address that right off the bat. And I, I kind of want to get your perspective of like what that was with both of you to chime in and answer this question, but like, what was your perspective? What, did, you know, what was your concern? Did you feel like, I mean, I've also heard criticisms of of us who tried to start this society that it seemed very like, you know, we're not including people. And and so I, I didn't ever want that to be the case. And yet it's a difficult problem to address of like. Of like, you know, how, how do you fix that? Like fix all society's problem. You know, it felt like very <laughs> difficult problem to address. Um, so I. Yeah. And you even like the first comment you made about the first conference sort of bridging or spanning this, these two spaces, at least, at least two, maybe there's like three overlapping circles in a Venn diagram where you've got Wallace in the Academy, Mm -hmm. right? As he's treated by the Academy, then you've got Wallace, the the pop culture Mm -hmm. and sort of cult figure. And like kind of, there's a lot of, there's some overlap, but there's a lot of different emphases there. But then there's, there's this third community which I think we saw members of this community, like it's less formal people who maybe are not in the academy or, you know, writing for magazines or websites. And they're just interested. They're just, they're just, mm-hmm. they're just readers, <laughs> but coming together. And I, I did feel like the conferences, I, f- I felt a bit less, I liked that it was a blend of people from, from university and not, but I, it was, it was like you mentioned, it was really conspicuously white, <laughs> and and uh, yeah, there was a certain sort of profile, you know, young male, white, bearded, a lot of them, guilty, guilty. And, but but to counter that, yeah, well, yeah, I mean, but to counter that, like I will give you guys credit for reaching out to the. I guess it was through the listserv that mm-hmm. I would have heard about the call for the diversity committee. It wasn't like maybe you were getting some flack or maybe getting some feedback, but that you all went out and made that your initiative. Like you took that upon yourselves to say like, we want to do something about this. We don't really know what or how to do it, but we want to do something. And not every, I mean, not every society or even like fan club is, is that like self self reflective. And, and I, I think it's been great. Like some of the, I don't want to, we can talk about the posts in a second, but, um, but it's been it's it's great it's it, there is clearly a wide range of voices and people who are interested in Wallace for a variety of reasons and then also 
who have a variety of kind of questions and concerns and problems with them too which i think it make, i think it makes it rich i think it makes it interesting and worth pursuing I, I yeah think. i agree i think i Andrea? think there's there's kind of a larger problem in academia in general of, of being fairly um monochromatic if if we're trying to be nice about it um it's it's <laughs> i don't think it's it's going to be easy just for one society to fix that um i haven't been to any of the the illinois conferences yet um this year is going to be my first year i went virtually last year but i could only see um diego and danielle and ryan i think so um that looked kind of diverse there was there's danielle up there i don't don't know who was in the audience though um and then we went uh again virtually we, we, Diego and I were there for a Q&A for Oz Wallace. And from what Tony said, um, it was pretty half and half, at least in terms of gender diversity, um, which mm-hmm. is the diversity that's easier to uh, calculate, I guess, because people can check off a box um, or you can tell by a name or something mm-hmm. like that. Um, but mm-hmm. for me, the, the, the realization that, that the Wallace community was white bearded men um was i was kind of dense to it at first because the class that i took was mary holland i'm like all right woman teaching the class and i looked around and and for undergrad i went to an all-women's college so i was used to um classes being full of women and then i walk into this david foster wallace graduate like uh seminar and it's a lot of men I'm like, okay, maybe I'm just used to my all-women environment. Uh, a lot of them had beards. Um, but it, it was also New Paltz, which is, is a very liberal kind of hippie town. So I it, it took me a while to realize that that's the kind of community that Wallace is associated with. It took going to um, that year. It was 2003. It was the spring of 2003. And that year, there was a ton of uh, Wallace panels at the ALA in Boston. And with the exception of Mary Holland, I think all of the presenters were male. Um, They didn't all have beards. Um, I think (laughs) Matt Mullins, I don't think he had a beard. Mike Miley, I don't think had a beard yet. He he does. I in tw- in twenty thirteen, I don't think he did. Yeah, yeah. Um, he may, or maybe I just wasn't sitting close enough, so I couldn't see it. But there were some beardless men, at least. Uh, yeah, it might have been the blonde. blonde. Um, so it took me a minute, but. Um, <laughs> you know, now that you say that, though, I, it it makes me think. Um, in, in my perspective of this, it wasn't something I gave a lot of thought to in the early days, like when I joined the Wallace list. And like 1999, 2000, um, hmm. about half of the most prolific posters, people who replied to everything were women. And uh, hmm. there was really, and there was also like a third category when it's just email and it's online, there were some people who you couldn't tell what their identity was because it was just an email address or they didn't mm. sign their posts. So it wasn't like a lot of thought given into that. I mean, sure, I think there was some, some like subconscious awareness that there was a lot of people who were especially like young, you know, highly educated males in certain environments and, and stuff were attracted to Infinite Jest. But I think after he died and he became more of like a cultural icon, there became a lot more attention um, 
and a lot more backlash to the to the types of you know this stereotype kind of came really more to the fore of like this is the typical Wallace mm. reader and it, it was sort of I felt like at the time it was sort of unique to him um, because like you were saying mm. like I've read other popular writers in college and it's rare that I mean maybe there's some association with like you know Kerouac or you know Bukowski or something where you're not going to hmm. see you know <laughs> too many women or people of color like embracing wholeheartedly um, so I don't I mean I I could think I didn't want Wallace to end up like that you're right like I thought like he's better than that and he's like more important than this and so I think this is something that we wanted to um, talk about like even if it's uncomfortable or even if it's even if it's um i don't know hideous yeah. for for us to to embrace uh, but, <laughs> but i feel like we've done yeah. we've done a pretty good job yeah. at least in trying to get more voices out there and uh what's been interesting to me diego is like a lot of the stuff we put on um the the diversity community the diversity committee's blog posts which have been phenomenal yeah. didn't really get a ton of attention you know didn't really get a ton of like conversation mm -hmm. it was sort of like when that conversation's out there it's mm -hmm. easier to ignore it's sort of like easier to embrace like the stereotype i was going to see what you thought maybe first just tell the listeners who might not be aware of like what the the blog project was oh yeah so our first big uh project was to it was initially conceived sort of as responses to dfw by by folks who are not like him, right? So let's hear let's hear from women, let's hear from people of color, let's hear from um, anybody who's read Wallace and wants to point out or comment on or add to the conversation in a way that feels like, yeah, I'm a fan, and what's up with these weird racial slurs, et cetera, or, you know, whatever. And a lot of the contributions have been, I mean, they've all been amazing. And the... The, the I was just rereading the comment that you sent us because um, I had I hadn't yeah. seen that that had posted either, and there's not there's not as much um, commenting or com conversation that I, I wish discussion that I wish that I would like to see grow. But you know these those posts aren't going anywhere, and we hope right. this is just the beginning. And part of me wonders, and because uh, you know there's the stereotype of. <laughs> Right. The stereotype of the David Foster Wallace reader is not the like nerdy Latino kid in Bloomington Normal or whatever, Chicago, whatever. It's it's this stereotype that yeah. you hear about or that I hear about all the damn time, which is it's it's especially young, you know, 20, 20 somethings men, usually straight, who are on the war path to letting everyone know that they need to read this person and they need to read Wallace. And if they don't, or if they suggest any nuance to or suggestions or critiques that they are just missing the point kind of thing. And I feel like that figure has become very well established in internet culture uh, and like internet yeah. lit culture. I cannot say that I've actually met anybody like that. That's what I was about to say. That person doesn't really exist. That person walks around or rides around on the subway with infinite jest in his hand as a prop and probably hasn't actually read it. And their copy is tattered because it has been his prop for so long. But if you were to be like, oh, hey, what did you think of this scene? Or like, oh, hey, Eschaton. Like, what? 
Do you remember that comment uh, Jason Segel made in an interview uh, where he bought Infinite Jest before uh, starting to film for the end of the tour and the bookseller saying to him that every every guy she's ever slept with has an unread copy of it on his nightstand? Mm-hmm. You know, that kind yeah. of like that prop as um, yes. as, as an impressive, as, as trying to like impress people or whatever. There's, I'm sort of interrupting you, Diego, but it's, it's relevant. There's, there was a, a movie, it wasn't that good, but um, I watch a lot of not that good movies. I think it was called Liberal Arts. Did any of you it see It is called that? Liberal Arts. Yeah, yeah. We've talked about it on the show before. That book I agree with is you. It's not such a good. prop in that movie. It's yeah, like, it's it reminds me of like Desdemona's scarf in Othello. Like, it's just this thing that you can follow around and... Like, I don't think anybody in that movie knew what that book was about, but they knew what it came to represent. And, like, it would have, Wallace would have hated, like, this empty symbol that that book has become. Like, it might as well be a lunchbox. Yeah. Like, maybe it would be more useful and, like, just make the cover a lunchbox and then they can carry something else in it at least. (laughs) He's never actually mentioned by name, nor is the book. Isn't that right, Andrea? They never, they never I, say I don't his think name. So. They do show a cover of like kind of a cloudy motif. It's not the exact yeah. cover of the first edition though. Um, and then they they make quotations of some of Wallace's comments about fiction, like you know the writer the writer said that you know the purpose of fiction is to make us feel less lonely and things like that. So there is some like very spe- specific uh, reference there, but never by name. So it's kind of you kind of have to because know. they probably didn't read it. <laughs> I wonder. I get so mad at the people. There's there's so many people who comment on that book, and and like we don't even have to get into all those articles that came out like last year. But right. people have opinions on that book and on him, and have never read it. Like I I went through the trouble of reading the book. I think I hurt my elbow. <laughs> tennis elbow. Read the book and then talk. I'm almost positive I got ten- tennis elbow reading that book because I had to read it in four and a half That's weeks for Mary. Some Hall. pretty rich irony in that. Yeah. What you're saying, though, it really it sort of alarms me um, because it could, you know, I didn't used to worry about this. I was like, yeah, whatever. You know, there's plenty of smart people out there who who do read it and care and, you know, respect <laughs> him and whatever and his writing, I should say. I mean, but recently we got an email from a listener and I, I don't I haven't asked him to, if I could share this story, but I'll just be vague about it. But it's uh a reading group for IJ he started at a prestigious university recently and immediately a few people emailed him and were like, what the hell, bro? Like, isn't that some awful, like awful bro guy? And you're not the bro dude. Like, what is like, what is this? And so then it puts him in the position of having to like defend Wallace and being like, no, that's, you know, if you're skeptical, like come join the conversation or whatever. But I mean, that's sort of my fear is that he just gets lumped in to be like shorthand for like in a, you know, sexist or something, you know, like that's just shorthand for like, oh, well, why would you why would you even want to go with that dude? Like not only do people not read the book, but like don't Mm. really even investigate much further than that. Just that it has some like reputation as like, oh, that's the the lit the lit bro thing. Oh, I don't want nothing to do with Mm. that. So I, fin- I mean, if we if we follow that logic, you pretty much discount every every major author of the twenty and twenty first century, and like and before well, that, right? I like I'm, I don't know. I mean, I think there's there's some that would probably still get the same treatment, you know, like people who who 
they live yeah. more by their reputation than people actually reading them. Right. Um, and people would still read Jonathan Safran Foer. He's like sainted at this point. <laughs> I don't think much about him, to be honest. <laughs> Um, yeah, most Wallace people have that reaction yeah. too. <laughs> um, but I, I just think that this is something that it seems somewhat new, you know, at least in the past. Like if your teacher said, oh, we're going to read this guy, like people would be like, never heard of him, whatever, let's read it. You know, or it wasn't like there was this visceral reaction. So that, that seemed like a mm-hmm. fairly new development. And I mean, I could probably speculate more on how we got there. But Yeah, and I don't, I, I wanted to go back to what we were how we got on this thread and I don't want to oh, yes. dis- I don't want to discount the experience of I mean I'm sure there's plenty of young co-eds who do experience this right on campus and they just roll their eyes and like oh god the lip rose again <laughs> and, and also I don't want to shit on like some young you know straight white dude who reads Wallace and has his mind blown and hey there are worse there are worse authors you could be relating to and like taking up as as you know identifying <laughs> with but but that that is so strange, right? The the reputation precedes it to an extent that it's like, mm. and it's such a poor such a poor sampling of the work, right? Like the dude wrote a lot. <laughs> it yeah. wasn't just the one book. I mean, there's all kinds of different shit that was all weird and strange, and and it's so strange that that's the reputation that is now sort of what do we have to do? We fight against it? Do we not? I mean, I'm I'm trying to sort of complicate it, right? And get those voices, like those two commentators who came on to the blog, the DFW Society blog, and they they really mm-hmm. connected with what Sean Gander had said about, well, I was reading it, reading it, reading it, and then I come across these racial slurs, and they're mm-hmm. they're just thrown in, they're not they're not problematized or investigated, and also there's not really any other characters to take up the mantle of of minority or person of color to in, in a redeeming way, and so it takes us out of it. And one of the commentators said something that we could you know we could think about or debate but he said that for maybe for white readers it doesn't rattle them they kind of just scan it over and saw like worst case scenario just kind of believe it as a truthful representation or something whereas other people may read it people of color especially read it and it's it's really jarring it's almost insulting it's like a smack in the face like yo i was was really enjoying this book man i'm on like page 700 and then you got to throw that in my face (laughs) it's like what what is this about (laughs) And I think that's something that hasn't really been grappled with uh, publicly a lot, Um, you know, without being, you know, just dismissed where it's easy to just be like, oh, well, it's it's a book for white people and there's not a lot of, Mm -hmm. you know, non-white people in it who are not like uh, caricatures. Um, And it's like, well, I like you're saying it's you can I think it's more complex than that. But I do think that 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 is something that at least amongst white people probably in the past didn't debate, you know, a lot of like that debate didn't come up because there's so many details in the book. And it's like, well, this is one detail. And it's like, well, if you're this type of reader, especially like Sean Gander says, you know what? It stuck out like a sore thumb pretty bad. And it's like, uh, you know, hearing his voice and putting it out there. I hope that other people come to that post and, and leave their comments on it too, because I think it hasn't been, much of the public conversation up until now. Mm-hmm. I agree. For anyone who has access to a computer while they're listening to this right now, who's not like driving their car, what is the <laughs> specific link to the blog site that we're talking about so people can go check it out? We'll link to it obviously later, but. Yep. It's called, 
it's on the dfwsociety.org. It is it was one of our, I don't know if it was one of our first, but it's called A Short Meditation on the Whiteness of David Foster Wallace's Writing. Uh, July 15th. Right, cool. And what, one thing I liked about this piece, too, is that it kind of grapples with another question that a lot of other writers have uh, grappled with, which is like, you know, how do you handle that? How should you write about mm. people of color whenever that's not your experience? Like, what is yeah. the line between like co-opting someone's story and then ignoring the existence of minorities, right. you know, and like different um, different people who are not like you? And Wallace, I, you know, mentioned in one piece recently that like, you know, his first novel is from the point of view of a woman. Mm. And it's like yeah. how, you know, what do you make of that, Andrea? Yeah, um, that was that was the the when I took the Wallace class, we read everything in chronological order, um, and oh, I read cool. that, and I I sort of felt that she was she was an empty character. Um, mm. I don't feel like mm. she was very much a woman. I didn't identify with her as a woman. Uh, I feel like she could have been Pete, <laughs> and nothing would have changed that much. <laughs> Other than the Rick Vigorous character, I think, I I honestly think that he is why the protagonist had to be a woman, um, because mm. he you, you can't have him without Lenore. Mm. Um, mm. But it it almost reminds me kind of like an Oedipa Moss character where she's sort of empty too. Um, and what I mm. what I mean by empty is like there there's not a whole lot going on that makes them identifiable as a woman. Um, mm. Mm. With Oedipa Moss, it's more just like she has all these men that she relies on and then she loses her men. Um, <laughs> that's pretty apt reading of crying of Love 49. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That's, that's, that's my, she that's my take on men. it. Um, I, I wrote a paper where I compared her to Odysseus because he too loses his men. Um, <laughs> at some point. Yeah. That's, um, I'm, I make very weird connections, so I apologize for that in advance. But I dig it. I don't think that there's anything internal about her that that like screams womanly hmm. to me. Hmm. Um, and I I don't know if it was because I I sort of I didn't have much of a back background in like Wittgenstein, so I was struggling with that. But mm-hmm. even like going back and looking at it, I don't I don't read her as much as. <laughs> how it's coming out it sounds really bad but i don't read her as much of a woman she's just sort of this agendered character um and she sort of had to be a woman for the sake of the characters around her uh so i don't think he he wrote her mm. misogynistically and i don't think he he wrote like it, it's not like some of the really really egregiously badly written characters in infinite jest like any any non-white character in infinite jest like what was going on with them um but she's she doesn't she wasn't like it's not like I'm gonna go around and be like oh my god I'm so Lenore Beadsman um, and and <laughs> she's like my spirit animal or something because there's there's not a lot there's not a lot to her as a woman mm-hmm. if that makes any sense. Hmm. Hmm. I I think you're right. I mean my perspective on that was that uh, it just seemed like a stand-in for him. Yeah, yeah, I think it was yeah. just like an, yeah. another like change the name, change his character slightly. I mean, he wrote it when he was very young, and it <clears> was <throat> you know the early 1980s. Um, 
But I also think that that's a pretty complex thing to try to identify where right. he fails in that. Because what, what you're saying is like the absence of gender doesn't necessarily make it a success. Um, mm. And that if, you know, this is a criticism of other male writers I've seen when they try to write a woman, they're like, oh, and she was, you know, aware of her breasts moving through <laughs> You know, as she was walking <laughs> everywhere, and it's like so over the top, like focusing on every aspect of her gender. I gotta or, say, that's you know, not so. my experience as a woman. Usually, um, I'll well, keep right. you updated, like, but that's not that's not usually how I walk through the world. See, so I mean, don't write exactly. that. But it's like, well, then if you sort of ignore the 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 femaleness, you know, the gender, then does it really just seem like you're you're not capable of writing it though you know like i don't i don't really know what the answer is here i'm kind of stumbling around yeah no yeah a lot of the i was thinking about this and a lot of the protagonists in girl with curious hair were female as well um and they 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 didn't really do it for me um, the stories I mean, were lesbian good, but... couple. I mean, right? There's a lesbian mm-hmm. couple and um, yeah, and little expressionless animals, mm-hmm. small expressionless yeah. animals, little, yeah. And then my none appearance. of them really were like, yes, that that is definitely the essence of womanhood. Like none of them. Whereas, mm-hmm. like with Hal, even though mm-hmm. he's like totally unable to speak and inside of his own head, you can cut. Well, I I shouldn't really speak to that, but it seems to me that he has more of a personality that maybe you could mm. identify with him as a, as a boy not just like a person but a boy mm. but i'm not one of those so i can't mm. really say that <laughs> well and the, i mean the, one of the things that makes this so complex too is that to make that judgment you necessarily have to bring in some kind of authorial reading of the author's life Right. Like you're looking at him then as this guy and what you know about his biography and then making a judgment mm. that he's, you know, putting too much of himself into the character or, or making some mm. other, you know, judgment about like, well, I don't like it because I know the author is like this way. I read a bad thing about the author and that colors your reading of the character. And I'm not saying it's bad. I mean, I would do the same thing. Like, I can't read about some authors without knowing something about their life. Um, but I, I just think that this is a hard thing. Like, well, then what is the answer? Like, what is, you know, should men even write from the point of view of women? Mm. And if so, how do they do that without failing mm. at it? Mm-hmm. <laughs> That is a good question. (laughs) I'm going to leave this for Diego because I don't write fiction. (laughs) Yeah, all right. Oh, my God. No, this is a really good question. I've I've been turning my wheels over here, Andrea, since you said that. And I'm thinking, like, I I got two wheels going. One is, when's the last time I've read a character who I really identified with as a man? Where I was like, this is a, a, a male character, or, and I and I like like this protagonist, or, I, or I'm compelled by this person because of some ingrained manness or something masculine. <laughs> it's not something, something that really even occurs to me. When and I, I do, I think, like, yeah, yeah, I know, right? But but or, yeah. or does it, right? You know, I, don't know. I was I, <laughs> I was reading the first book in um, Octavia uh, Butler's uh, Lilith's Brood. Mm. 
and it's I, I, it's fresh in my mind and the protagonist is a woman lilith obviously and i'm trying to think about the pros and what about the pros convinces me that this is a, that this character is a woman and it's just one example out of many but i'm just thinking about there's several sort of relationships that kind of come and go relationships with aliens are also happening and i don't i i don't know if i could write a paper on it but there is something about the texture of the prose i don't and i that's the thing i don't know if i could make a case and be like yep that's 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 how a woman would speak and you know that's how a woman would think but but there's something to that though that that because of like what you said about lenore ringing so like and I agree with you. It it's like a, it's just like a gender swapped stand-in for young DF Dub. It seems maybe I'm not. Maybe that's not the most generous reading. No, I but. totally agree with you. And I think maybe he was trying to hot. I, I, we shouldn't t- try to speak for him, but you know, it's a podcast, so we're gonna do it anyway. Um, <laughs> it, maybe he was trying to hide behind it. It's like an extra mask if he like mm. adds a vagina to it or something. <laughs> I mean, uh, so another thing, a piece I want to link to in the comments of this, this show notes after um, for this episode is a piece that was in Thought Catalog uh, after the DT Max biography came out. And it's written by Kristen Rupinian, who is now famous for having written Cat Person in The New Yorker, oh, which is a pretty great story if you haven't um, read it or been part of the, um, the conversation around it has been sort of... Um, you know, viral mm-hmm. or something. Um, but the argument that she makes in there is a pretty devastating piece, um, bringing in this very issue about like how we have this idea of who David Foster Wallace was in our heads, and that mm. sort of colors our our reading of his fiction. She makes the point that um, this terrible stuff that came out about him in the biography, mm. and there's a lot of you know him being an asshole in mm-hmm. general. Um, that that should sort of destroy any kind of like David Foster Wallace community or like worship of Wallace or like cult of Wallace stuff. Mm. Um, and I, mm. I, you know, I, I don't know how to feel about that because I feel like my own experience is a little bit different and that I've never mm. been one to think that he was a saint no. <laughs> or n- never been one to think that he's mm. above criticism or that, you know, his work is all perfect or, you know, I've always been very mixed in and complicated and a lot of my feelings and emotions about this. But I also think she's got some pretty good points that sort of the opposite happened, you know, after the book came out, it added to his fame and reputation, Mm. maybe in the negative Mm. way. And I think what I was saying earlier about like some people, their first reaction is like, Oh, he's this bro dude. Like, Maybe some of it comes from the biography. I wanted to get, you know, you guys' opinions on the, the biography. I think the line about his letter yeah. in his letter to Jonathan Franzen about what he feels his purpose in life is. Do you guys remember this line? So I don't. He no. sometimes feels like the reason he was put on the planet was to see how many vaginas he could put his penis <laughs> male male organ into. <laughs> Which well, thank you for shoot. making me the only one that didn't say vagina, or making me not the only one. That <laughs> yeah, said you're, you're welcome, Andrea. I'm here, I'm here to uh, to accommodate. <laughs> but like you know, like that phrase obviously is is pretty. I mean, appalling and and reading that, you're just like, whoa, man, mm. that's pretty gnarly. Um, 
but I know people like that. I think he, I like think he meant, it, meant it from a, like a biological perspective. Yeah, right. right. Like, this is what it feels like. I'm hardwired like that. This is what the purpose of life feels like. Which I mean, so things like that probably don't help for his reputation in the biography, and and then of course all the stuff with Mary Holland's or um, mm. uh, Mary Carr's oh, husband. I'm telling and... her you said. <laughs> Freudian, We're Freudian edit that out. <laughs> um, yeah, Mary Carr's husband and the murder plot and all that kind of stuff. Which I mean, I'm I'm still very yeah. curious to hear more about that, and I wish that I'd asked uh, Dan Max about it more, and we had him on the show. But it feels almost like a topic that maybe we shouldn't be talking about in some ways because it's like too, mm. it's so sketchy. It's I don't know, but I want to know more. I don't. I I think I think it is, and I think Andrea, you were about to say that like you know some people who kind of are like think like that or talk like that, and I think everybody we all, does. If and we got any re- of you try to say that yeah. you don't know somebody who has implied or said sure, something sure. like that yeah. you are a liar like i went to an all women's college and i know people who said stuff like that in college so if anybody tries to say that they don't and that that's like what i try to say to my students is like when we're reading mm-hmm. brief interviews with hideous men i try to tell them you are going to find yourself in one of these men i'm not going to ask you who it is <laughs> but you're going to find yourself yeah, totally. and you're going to feel weird but that's the point. Yeah, yeah. And I think that if the the people who are saying, oh, God, he's a horrible person because he said that to Jonathan Franzen. Well, part of me is like, fuck Jonathan Franzen for telling people that because <laughs> don't tell people the gross things that yeah. your friend said after he died. But like at the same time, it makes him look yeah. more to me that that should have i don't think it did for a lot of people but it should have toned down the saint dave kind of thing yeah you would think so um Mm -hmm. but then he also i don't know if it was from the same letter um with jonathan franzen but he said something completely brilliant about words he said something about like if words are all we have as world and god then we must treat them with I'm, i'm not looking at a quote so i apologize (laughs) <laughs> um, then we must treat them with care and we must worship or something. Mm. So like, yeah, how does the same familiar. person say that? <laughs> right. like, how, how do those words, mm. the th- same words and the same phrases fall out of the same person's mouth? So like we, mm. everybody regards him as this huge genius and he wrote this thousand page end note filled genius book that we know is not a genius book because it's got flaws. God forbid we talk about them. Mm. And then he also kind of wanted to have a lot of sex. So I still think it's a genius book. I think it might be flawed, but it's yeah, I couldn't write it. So <laughs> uh, I don't think anyone yeah. else plus could write it. The, those comments that we're talking about it was in it was in correspondence, yeah. you know, and with with canonization and especially with the early early passing. Yeah we wouldn't have known this stuff. And I think that it, it yeah, as we uncovers it, I absolutely agree. It should temper the, the adulation, yeah. the unadulterated yeah. adulation. Right. Yeah. But, but also like people are people and people are complex and people say shitty things. And we can, we can enjoy both and talk about how they were kind of problematic and private and problematic and mm. what they wrote. And I keep, I don't know. I keep thinking about, <laughs> the the comparison that comes to mind because somebody was talking about it uh, this weekend was uh like mm-hmm. Louis C.K. Mm-hmm. and you go back and rewatch some of his old bits. He's got this hilarious bit about 
smoking weed and how like the weed today is just bonkers compared to whatever he used to smoke and i can i can laugh and i can enjoy that but then but then <laughs> always in the in the also in the forefront of of watching that is all this shit that was going mm-hmm. on behind the scenes so it absolutely mm-hmm. kind of changes the viewing and for me it changes yeah, the viewing of that because i think that that's important you know uh, I never liked him. Really <laughs> Let um, me just state for the record. <laughs> but I will but I will tell you, I think that this conversation is, you know, sort of what's happening in the society at large right now. And, uh, you know, reckoning with a person's art and their personality mm. and really what they've done and what they've been accused of and like the details of it matters. And I, mm-hmm. I'll be honest with you. I think it's harder when that person is dead and not here to defend themselves. Mm. And yeah, all of this yeah. stuff comes out after the fact. And guess what? The only, you know, thing that can we can hear is one person's side of a story. And mm-hmm. honestly, the stuff that Wallace has been accused of. I mean, there's a lot in there of like speaking negatively about women in general. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's problematic. I think it's bad and I don't condone it. Right. But I also think you have for me, I have to judge it in the context of sort of all, you know, I weigh it on one side of like, how bad is this offense? And for some people that might be like, you know what, I'm checked out, that's done. And I respect that. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not one of those people who thinks this is the all time greatest writer that everyone in the world needs to read. I am a book person. And I think there's a lot of wisdom and humanity in books. And Wallace is part mm. of that. But I don't think mm. like you have to love this one writer in one book. And like, if, if you're a woman and you read that biography and you say, you know what? Fuck this guy for all eternity. I can never go back and read him. I, I respect uh-huh. that, that decision. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's funny. I'm, I'm not actually... That's funny you say that. Now, I'm, I'm not all that interested in convincing people to read him. <laughs> Me neither. Think, I, Me neither. Know, like, like, really, I'm thinking about our work with the Diversity blog, and the, it was really more a call for like people who have read and have have a qualm to air or something rather than and like people who want to like do we salvage this or is this worth is this still worth some like mm-hmm. reading again or something and much less interested in being like, yeah i agree with you it's less about being like an evangelist <laughs> i guess an evangelist for saint dave i don't really have no. any interest in that like if someone was like yeah i hate david foster Wallace, like, okay, <laughs> probably not the blog yeah, for you then I, <laughs> I mean there's plenty of people and i think that that's that's to me the sign of like um a writer that that will endure is like one that doesn't have to be defended. It's like, mm. I, I mean, hmm. there are plenty of, if you look at the, the, I'm super interested right now in like the list of ALA societies, like there are a ton, two or 300 single author societies in there. Right. And a lot of them are much more established than others, but you look at like what gets studied in academia is just one measure, but like what gets read, um, you know, it's it's interesting to see what, what endures because of the author and, and then what endures sort of in spite of the author, if that makes any yeah. sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, you got all deep and now we, we don't know what to say. Sorry, sorry. <laughs> take it off. Um, but, but I mean, I, this, this thing that, you know, some of it I think uh, feels like legit concerns that were not necessarily part of the conversation 10 years ago yeah, 10 yeah. years ago mm. and 
you know, Wallace himself, if he, you know, I like to think like if he had written, <laughs> maybe he would have changed his characters a little bit. Maybe we would have changed his ways. But even at the last Wallace conference, um, 2017, there was a good paper about the female characters in The Pale King. Does anyone remember this? Mm. And there, guess what? They're yeah. also sort of like caricatures and not really complex. And, um, you know, there's mm. a good thing in there about um, Meredith Rand and Tony Ware. Tony Ware is like one of my favorite <laughs> um Characters. Yeah. I think Lucas Thompson actually wrote about uh, Tony Ware as like a strong female character, but he had based it on, um, I think he based some of Tony Ware on a, a grad student uh, that, that he knew. Hmm. Um, and, and Lucas Thompson makes that connection in a paper. Um, so did that just to say like, well, I'm, I'm hopeful that, you know, maybe as he lived through, say three or four or five decades of writing, he would not end up like Philip yeah. Roth, but, but be someone who was a little more modern, <laughs> uh, progressive in their representations. But I also mm -hmm. think it's a hard question to solve of like, how do you properly represent the world in your, <laughs> in your mm -hmm. fiction, you know, and still achieve your sort of fictional truth. I don't know. That's right. And is that the burden of, of the writer? I mean, do does that is that what we expect when we go in to read something? Maybe in some ways. Maybe it's I not, think we can only know. expect one author to represent one part of like in this case mm. his experience. We can't expect him to represent the entire world. Um and and the Which is why I I, I just such a I, whenever you just said that, I'm yeah. thinking of his nonfiction and like the I, that's yeah. some of my favorite writing. Because it's just unabashedly stripped away any pretense of. Well, I mean, that's not true. He creates a character, right? But <laughs> but sure. it's so it's obviously so much more. He doesn't have to put on the mask. He doesn't have to put on like the the Lenore mm -hmm. get up. You know, it's just <laughs> it's just this amped up version of of his own observations, which I find I find more authentic. I find it more convincing. I also connect with it more. Um, mm -hmm. hmm. Yeah, I think yeah. that. Because yeah. you, you did pose a question in the emails about, like, what, where would his writing be now, sort of in the wake of all of this diversity stuff that we have to focus on? And his writing kind of morphed so much in even just a short-ish, relatively short career that I think it's almost impossible for us to say for sure what it would have looked like. But had he stayed working at a college or a university, he would be part of these conversations that we're all part of. Um, mm -hmm. Like I'm part of the Committee for Institutional Diversity and Equity, and we have to talk about these things all the time. Um, are we including enough diverse everything for our students? So he would be very, very aware of it. And anytime he's aware of something, it shows up in his <laughs> writing. Um, and it's almost, he, had, he, he so it would be in there even if it was, hidden or buried or masked in some way um and i feel like and this is completely 100 percent my opinion and you can all disagree with it and like boo me and throw things at me um i think dave you'd have to Virtually. throw it especially far but um <laughs> yeah it would it would sort of be like this meta diversity kind of thing that that you have to dredge up from somewhere um and of course everybody would be arguing about it whether it's actually there or not but um, 
that that that's sort of just my opinion. I don't think he would he would be straightforward about it because I don't know that he was ever at least in the fiction mm-hmm. was never straightforward mm-hmm. about it. There mm-hmm. would be masks all over the place with it. Mm-hmm. I I think in a way it's a, it's sort of a no win situation. Is that if he if he were somehow able to write some novel that not just like you know, what's from the point of view of like, let's say a, a black woman, it's like, does, it's mm. going to feel, is that ever going to succeed? Is that ever going to be mm. free of like legit cons- criticism? It's like, I don't know. And it's like, it seems like a tough, a tough thing to approach. And I think there's a bit in signifying rappers where he talks about, you know, and that was written in like what, 1988, but he talks a little mm. bit about like not wanting to completely try to co-opt this, like writing about, you know, mm-hmm. I have to dig up the quote for our show notes, mm. but he, he is aware of the issue in the, in the late 1980s. Mm-hmm. The appropriation yeah. issue. Yeah. Um, oh yeah. But it's also like this tokenization issue. Like I feel like mm-hmm. some of the, the characters in infinite jest just feel like tokens. Um, and I feel like that that's an issue too, even in our, our conferences. And it's like, do we, you know, how much do we value actually bringing in new voices versus just like, oh, let's get a token black person on this conf- on this conference, you know? Like, I, I think that that's a hard thing. What, what and- Andrea was saying about, you know, having these discussions of, of even if they're difficult, even bringing people in, bringing them together, getting consensus on it might be very difficult. It might take a long time, but I think that that's, that's what the future is. Like, it's not ignoring it or like getting, I don't know, bent out of shape about it forever again. Like, I think we have to move forward to bring people into this conversation and it's not just Wallace. I mean, this is a bigger like community issue is what I see it. Yeah, I agree. But I'm also wondering why, why would we expect him to be able to write from the perspective of a black woman? Like, why would that be an expectation? Yeah, that'd be be weird. weird. Right. And then I'm, I'm thinking that that would be, um, you know, is it a criticism then that he doesn't write about, uh, you know, a book from anything other than his own perspective? And this is a true of like uh, other writers, right? This is like a broader issue. Like Saul sure, Bellow yeah. was criticized for writing um, Henderson, the Rain King, which is a book about Africa without ever going to Africa. And it's like, can Mm. you just imagine it? Like, and I think this is a question I have for both of you is like, do you think that Wallace's inability to do this is somewhat a failure of imagination, you know, or empathy of how others experience the world? Or is, should that be a concern of great literature? Well, what you just mentioned made me think of a book that won, I believe was, it was the it was either the National Book Award or the National Book Critics Circle Award. I think it was the National Book Award. It's a book called "The News from Paraguay," and my my family's from my father's from Paraguay. And uh, in her acceptance speech, the author just blatantly outright said, "Oh, you know, you know, I didn't even go there. I didn't, I didn't even visit. I just made it all up." And that's just such an egregious slap in the face of people who have lived the experience. And you think you can just, with your white imagination, conjure up a peoples and a culture and a history and use it to win awards? It's like really offensive. And in, 
I feel like in signifying rappers more than anywhere else, they're both so he and Costello are both so aware of not appropriating and just you know situating themselves as these two these two nerds who like rap and just want to approach it from their point of point of uh, in, in investigation. And I think it works really well. And then you see in the fiction, it's so much of his fiction is just laden with concerns about empathy and how do we do that? Is it even possible? And I know this is not exactly answering your question, but I wonder if part of the failure there is getting sort of stuck or frozen on the question of can you ever really connect with another person? Like there's so much of that to the point where it sort of gets... In my opinion, it gets a little bit like, I, I get it, I get it. It's hard <laughs> yeah. to connect with people. I get it. But, but, you know, I, but there's something there too. I don't yeah, know. He's, he's got that line in the, in the McCaffrey interview about how in the real world, true empathy is impossible. And the only way we can even approach it, I'm not directly quoting again. Um, the only way we can even approach it is in, in fiction. Um, because of, of, of imaginative access. To it other gives selves. us imaginative access to yeah. other selves. Um, and I don't think that any one author should be expected to write about the experience of everyone. Like Hemingway, <laughs> I don't think I've ever read anything by uh, by Hemingway that didn't have some like super masculine war <laughs> yeah. guy other yeah, than yeah. that one story mm-hmm. that is anthologized everywhere about, I think it's called Soldier's Home, about the war guy who comes home and is sad. Mm. Um, Juno Diaz, mm. uh, every book mm. or story I've read by him is about Dominican immigrants, which is great because that gives voice to Dominican immigrants. Mm-hmm. But why are, why would we expect him to write about other types of immigrants? Mm. And like Sherman Alexie, everything he writes is about mm. particularly Spokane. He calls them Indians. Um, he prefers Indian to Native American, so I've gotten used to saying that, so I apologize if that's offensive to anybody. Um but we don't expect Sherman Alexie to go write about a bunch of white dudes or from the perspective of a bunch of white dudes. Um, so I don't know why we would expect mm. the white guy to write from the perspective of of something other than the white guy. Um, <laughs> I, I would expect him or hope that he wouldn't have such problematic representations of mm. non-white guys. Um but we can't. We can't. Win I'm everything. trying to think of a book that's done it well. I mean, it, yeah. maybe if if readers out there who are are better read than than us, like write in and tell us, like, <laughs> here's a guy who you know wrote from the perspective of a woman or someone else and did it well. I would be curious to hear <laughs> that. Um, I think most of those, what you know, what you're saying is sort of. Um, I'm agreeing with mentally. I'm shaking my head. Yes, yes. Because a lot of those like trying to leap over the wall of self into someone else. Um, pretty much every case I can think of that of of someone narrating a story that is not really their own yeah. fails. Mm. Except maybe in science mm. fiction, mm-hmm. <laughs> like where you're like an orc. Tolkien. Tolkien's the only guy who nailed it. Um, but then there's no appropriation. There's no risk. Because mm-hmm. right. orcs I mean, don't actually exist in reality. <laughs> Is that what you're saying? I'm sorry. Did I did I ruin something? And we talked about some of this too with uh, Claire Hayes Brady, episode 21. And you know, right. Claire is uh, 
uh, editor of our journal now, Wallace Studies Journal, and she's uh, you know written a lot about the mm. unspeakable failures mm. of David Foster Wallace. And then yeah, I've had that book out from my college's library for over a year, <laughs> and I think I'm not giving it back. <laughs> Um, well, Dave and I spent a lot of time with it before yeah. we, we talked with her in 2016. And, you know, I feel like this is a conversation that's been ongoing and um, it will continue to be ongoing mm-hmm. for m- many more, you know, conferences and papers and books to come. Yeah. Um, and I feel like I'm talking too much in this episode. <laughs> I feel like I need to shut up. <laughs> no. Well, no, I, no. I, I think... Oh. One of you said something, and now I can't remember what it was, but it made me think of um, brief interview number 20, which is one that I end up spending a lot of time with um, with my students if I assign it, which I don't always. It really depends on the class um, and how often that interview is so misread. Um, and I think it was in Claire Hayes Brady's book where she says something about how that particular interview is... Um, I think she says it. This is the granola cruncher, right? Yes. Yeah, the granola cruncher. She says that um, interview number 20 interrogates misogyny. I think that's the way she puts it. Um, And I kind of agreed with her. I'm going to, I'm trying to remember, I presented on this at last year's ALA, actually, um, with the, with, with us, with our um, (laughs) society. Um, So uh, in that interview, the granola cruncher is silent. The inter, the, the female, interviewer is silent and all we have is this horrible guy who I'm pretty sure is trying to pick up the interviewer at a bar based on does anybody else get that impression or did I make that up like he keeps buying her drinks um mm-hmm. he's using the story of someone another woman's rape to try to pick somebody mm-hmm. up and Wallace allows the women to just let him bury himself huh in that story and he's and there's a point at which he says these and other details she withheld so he's telling her story he has completely the the interviewer has interviewee has completely appropriated this woman's story of her rape and added details to it (laughs) in order to try to pick someone up at a bar it's like the grossest yeah. thing in the entire world. And there's and, an article published calling dark. it a, um, gl- uh, I, I'm misquoting, but there's an article, there's an actual published article calling it a glorification of rape culture. Huh. Like if you read that article and understand anything, uh, or if you read the story and understand anything about Wallace, mm. you know that that's not what's happening in this story. And I think that by allowing the interviewer to remain silent there's something mm. to that that i think is really really important and i haven't totally flushed it out in a way that i can say it verbally yet mm. and claire might have in in her book i feel like she has and i just forgot now um but he you have to go read it and get back to I it. Have it. <laughs> I, 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 <laughs> I, I do think there is a huge level of self-awareness yeah. in that story because uh there's a lot of what he's doing there about what exactly what we're talking about of how do you identify right. with another person and you know this sort of 
over the top story about how she escaped from this rapist was that she mm. got him to identify with her. And that was like literally saving her life. And so I think there is like mm-hmm. a thing there about him mm. um, talking about the purpose of fiction. And there's a funny mm-hmm. thing that that story ends with the phrase end of story, yeah. <laughs> which is, I feel like is a criticism of him of like, Oh, you don't know how to end a story, Dave. <laughs> yeah. I'll show you. After there's so many gestures. stories that he doesn't end. He doesn't end broom of the system. He ends forever overhead mm. with hello, but he's mm-hmm. aware of it. Yeah. I think he's very conscious of it. And, um, just the fact that you're not really aware of it when you're reading it, it's like a guy, you're reading this monologue yeah. mm. and then you get to the guy defending himself and he's like, I'm done with it. Like end of story. And then, mm. you, but if you read it as a reader, it's like it's hilarious that he ends it with end of yeah. story. Yeah. yeah, but it's not hilarious in if you look at the interviewee. If you look at this guy number twenty who's sitting here calling mm. this woman, that's the only hilarious detail. No, no, no. But no. outside of that, yeah, <laughs> that's the only hilarious detail. It's not a hilarious story. Correct. I yes. do think it's misread. <laughs> I do think it's misunderstood, and I actually think it's some of his like best work oh, in yeah. the book. Mm. Um, mm. And underappreciated, it was published originally as a standalone story in the Paris Review. But yeah, I I feel like it's it's in that story by not taking by not um, writing what the interviewer says. It's almost like he's not appropriating the woman's voice. He's allowing the woman, even though she's silent, allowing the woman's no. voice to kind of be whatever it needs to be. So I, I just feel like there's something to that. The the cues yeah, left open. It's very powerful. And most of my students are like just like, the, that's so yeah. annoying. Why can't we just just read the story? <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, there's issues like this, which I think are, are super valuable to get into the work and actually say, oh, you know, what were you bothered by? And that's sort of what that post with Sean Gander brings out is says, you know what? this actually is problematic. Like this, this story, it actually did put me off and here's why I think that's super valuable. There's the other issue we've kind of jumped back and forth, but um, it's, it's on my mind uh, right now because we're coming up to conference season and uh, Diego, are you going to be there? Oh yeah. I'm going to be there with my father-in-law. Awesome. Awesome. (laughs) Has he read infinite jest? Yeah. And not to give anything (laughs) away, he's a, he's a physiatrist and he said that he learned more about alcoholism that it, from reading Infinite Jest than he did in, through his medical training. He was like oh, blown away. Oh it changed God. how he like huh. <laughs> understands treatment for alcoholism. <laughs> wow, that's crazy. That's, I can't wait to talk to him about this. Um, but there's, I was going to say we're, we're jumping back and forth because there's a big issue right now about conferences in general and um, and representation. You know, we said at the top mm-hmm. of the show, Tony, who organized the Oz Wallace conference in Melbourne, worked really hard to get, you know, about 50, 50 split. And I mean, I would love to see more, um, progress made towards that, but I will tell you like behind the scenes, it can be difficult whenever we get panels that are like all white dudes. And that, that is still hard. I want to get you guys opinion on this because like, I don't ever want to get in the position of being like, let's add a guy to the panel because, you know, he's LGBT or let's add a guy just because, you know, the paper doesn't work and we wouldn't accept it, but we really need someone that's this representation. Um, so uh, what do you guys think about that? Mm. Yeah, that's a, that's a good one because it's that God, it's like that old question about 
quality and and quota and how quotas you know can i don't know how i feel about it is why i'm waffling here but that quotas can dilute quality and i don't know if that's personally i don't know if that's true and even if it is i kind of think that, that that's a sacrifice that needs to be made kind of thing but it's a bit it's a bit more complicated than that i think that it can i think that the work of the society can can um I think in problematizing it, invite people who would be otherwise be hesitant or who may have been put off by it, or even just who are who have even dived in because of the reputation, like we were talking about earlier, that they may find spaces of entry and they may find things that are worth redeeming or or worth connecting with. And and I hear you on those on the panels. God damn, the panels that not 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 just the the DF Dub conference, but just every conference ever. Like, how do you go, how do you move away from the, the homogenous panels? And it's, it's not, it's not as easy as just being like, oh, hey, you know, you, you and you, can you, can you hop on this panel? And just so that we look, you know, so we have a semblance of diversity or superficial diversity. And, but I also think along those lines, it's important to recognize different types of diversity as well, you know, like in terms of not just gender and, and race or ethnicity, but even age and profession and experience and language and nationality and all these other ways to approach it. I mean, Wallace has been translated into God knows how many languages. And last year there were quite a few wonderful, like um, like mind blowing uh, uh, panels that included folks from um, all over the world. And, and two, two of them, a guy from uh, Mexico and a, and a woman from um, Bulgaria, I think. Uh, they actually sent us their stuff and we needed to, well, I, I needed to edit it into a bloggable format. Um, but like, that's even a form of diversity, right? Where maybe even if the gender and the race or ethnicity question is, is still, we're still thinking about and working on. I think that's one way that also reflects the global, the global Wallace, right? Title mm-hmm. that book. Yeah, yeah I, I completely agree that there's there's the sort of invisible diversity, like the stuff that you can't necessarily see, but totally enriches the experience. Um, and I, I to, to kind of answer your question, I, I, I it's hard because you, you don't want to have a panel full of white young dudes with beards, though your, your beards are lovely. Um <laughs> I'm gonna shave it off. After <laughs> <this>. <laughs> yeah, your your beards are all very lovely, but um, you don't want to just like throw somebody in there just for the sake of diversity and then have like, a totally disjointed panel. But I'm um, I'm sort of in the same boat as Diego in that. Hopefully, through these conversations and through the blog and through just even just admitting the problems that exist, it'll entice a more diverse readership and I don't know if writership is a word but um more people to attend and to write and to submit and like be part of this sort of awesome community um and I don't say it's an awesome community because you include me in it though that is pretty (laughs) awesome um but I, I I posted about this last year but I somehow ended up um I had to swap panels with somebody in terms of moderating and I ended up moderating a science fiction panel which is not my forte (laughs) but it was a very cool experience at first because I looked at our panel and it was one one presenter couldn't show up but it was two women and one of them was uh 
presenting on the brief wondrous life of Oscar Wilde mm. as a piece of science fiction. And one of them was presenting on a um, Asian woman author who I cannot remember, um, but I thought it was like one of the least typical <laughs> science fiction things ever. And then I looked around the room and it was a bunch of older white men and Mary Holland. Oh, no. And I was like, oh, no. <laughs> so the Q&A just became these guys like talking to each other. Uh, well, I think, well, I think. I'm like, well, can we hear what our presenters think? <laughs> and it just became like white dudes talking to other white dudes about what, like they stopped talking about what the panel was. And I just uh, like, why did this just happen? And then in the the Wallace panel that I presented on, it was two women and one guy and um we were all at totally different stages in our careers and the audience was totally mm. much i keep saying totally edit that out too um the the audience was much more um diverse and it was a conversation it wasn't like a bunch of dudes all agreeing with each other and patting mm. themselves on the back for being how clever they are um so I am patting us on the back because I think that we, we're not perfect, obviously, but we're fostering a much richer conversation than, than some communities mm -hmm. are. Um, and I think it, it takes time. I don't, I think we are going to still have some panels with a bunch of bearded white dudes hmm. from time to time. And I, I think that's, that's, your beards are lovely. So I think it, it, it it's okay. But I think it has to happen a little bit more organically than, oh, no, we have a white dude panel. Let's go find a, a Latino dude or a, a woman or someone who's clearly LGB. Like, they're not going to check off a box when they submit a uh, paper. So, um, and I think I'm, I'm going to keep rambling for a second because Dave can... Like make his money or whatever you do. I don't even know. Um, but you, you can edit a lot of this out. Um, you think but, I make my money editing this podcast? Yeah, I, yes. No. <laughs> um, Sold like how many stickers, Matt? Yeah. Um, More than ten. <laughs> That'll it'll pay the bills. Right? I've got like I've got stickers I can send you. I'll pay you in stickers. Um, <laughs> But the other problem is that when you create a panel, you're trying to find some sort of almost similar papers and people who mm. are similar might write about similar things. Mm. So sometimes it just yeah. might not happen that way. Um, if you're if you're creating a Wallace and gender panel, you might have a whole panel of women, mm. Um, mm. which is not it, it's great because now you've got a whole bunch of women talking about Wallace. But that's not exactly diverse. Mm. Mm. So, um I'm done rambling now, so I'll shut up. <laughs> well, the the society, I would say, we came to be as sort of a natural outgrowth of partly of the, the ISU conferences and partly people who were already functioning like a like an informal community already. And, you know, this is all this volunteer of people who really love uh, this one author's writing. And I think... I'm going to put in a plug now to say, if you want to be involved, reach out, you know, reach mm. out to us. Like we definitely do not want anyone to not feel welcome. We don't want anyone to feel excluded. 
Um, and I say we because I don't feel like even though I am the president of the society, I don't feel like it's my thing. I feel like I am part mm. of it. And, um, I, you know, I was not at the 2016 conference. I've never been to any of the international conferences and we've had a bunch. Um, so I, I feel like I'm a part of a bigger thing. And I think that it needs to have a lot of people, um, participating in order to be viable long-term. Mm -hmm. And I, I hope that more people want to share their story and get involved. And we want to just make it you know, as easy and welcoming as possible for them to do that. So reach out to us info at dfwsociety.org. If you want to email us. Yeah. Tony doesn't even have a beard, so it's not. (laughs) (laughs) And again, Tony's also like a non-traditional academic in some ways and that he, you know, is like me. He's like a dad, right? And he (laughs) came to academia late. (laughs) Um, it's like a day. Uh, and it came to academia late. Right. And, and I mean, he's an interesting dude. And that's why, like, to me, it, I take some of this as like, Hmm, I, I have to shake my head a little bit. Cause I look at a lot of the people and I see a lot of individual cases who I know their life mm. story, or I know their, you know, this person is from Germany and they don't really, they're not a native speaker and they have a different background. You know, what we call is just like, Oh, mm. white dudes is like, do you really are we all the same? Like this guy from rural Australia and this guy from like, you know, urban Germany and this dude from Mm. Illinois, like, you know, it's like, it seems like a little too easy to lump all of those people into Mm. one generic category that you can write Mm. off. Um, But this happens. I'm not defending it, but I I just think that if you get to know some of these people, it changes your mind a Mm. little bit about stereotypes. Mm. I don't know where I was going with that. So. <laughs> no, I think it was nice, though. Um, I, part, partly just to really say we can always use more help organizing conferences, um, people reading papers, giving us feedback. We have a lot of this uh, opportunity. So if you're out there listening, you want to be more involved, reach out to us. Um, go on the website. There's a form you can fill out. You can say, I want to be more involved. You can email us at the We'll give our email address always at the end of every show. It's, I think it's greatconcavity at gmail.com. Concavity show. Can have show. Damn it. I got it wrong. <laughs> Concavity show at gmail.com. So yeah. anyways, before we, um, <laughs> before we get to that of where to reach out to us, is there anything that we have talked to over you and not given you a chance to say, Andrea, Diego, either one of you want to any final thoughts here? Um, I, I, I just wanted to, cause it, I, I wanted to read this quote off the back of my, one of my copies of signifying rappers and because it's such a different tone than like the, you know, the Wardine chapters and all that and, and, and infinite jest and it's, it's really badass. Cause again, yeah, right. This came out in, you know, 80, whatever, 88, 87, 88, but it's one of the poll quotes. He says that rap is today's pop music's lone cutting edge. The new, the unfamiliar, the brain resisted while body boogies and that resisted alien exhilarating cutting edge has always been black and always an augury of pop's very near future. And I'm like, this is coming from someone who 
went on to do what, you know, whatever, a bunch of other problematic stuff, blah, 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 but also a lot of really good and deep and mind bending stuff. And I'm so, so interested in that and like this, this recognition of an art form that is not his own and never will be and is even approached with that very much in the, in the forefront of his mind. And yet to say something like that, and this is something like I could have like this kind of quote could have been applied to like Black Panther, you know, that just came mm -hmm. out mm -hmm. like this, the cutting edge has always been black, et cetera, et cetera. And I just think that that is something worth worth pursuing. And it's not to say that <laughs> it's the best example. Obviously, it's not lots of, you know, writers of color and women writers and writers from other countries are doing exceedingly incredible stuff. But I keep coming back to the, these little, especially this, and it, it's like a, an anchor for me. And I'm interested in pursuing that more. And if anyone who is listening is, is if that resonates with you, um, get in touch with me and let's, let's, let's rap. Let's talk. <laughs> Pun intended. Yeah. <laughs> that's cool. I don't think I've read that. That's really, you know, it's him giving credit where it's due, I guess. That's interesting. I was just going to add that if anybody's interested in adding to the diversity conversation or letting us know something that you think should happen or be on the blog, or if you have an idea for a blog post, um, well, first take a look at what we have. We Some of them are formal, some are not so formal. We don't really have like rules. Um, so you can, I mean, I guess we should have some rules, mm -hmm. um, but you can email Diego and I, um, well, me and Diego at, uh, I think oh, yeah. we're diversity at dfwsociety.org. That goes to us. Um, Sounds right. We're official. <laughs> so email us with whatever, if you want to fight, if you want to talk, if you want to write something, uh, anything, mm -hmm. if you have ideas, we like ideas. That's great. That's a, that's an awesome invitation. And I, I really appreciate the work that the diversity committee is thinking about in making, you know, this community more invitational um, and opening up the conversation about Wallace to as many people as want to get in on it. I think that's fantastic. So thank you guys so much mm -hmm. for uh, your input there. And for, again, for your time on this episode, it's been uh, amazing to hear from you guys. Yeah, thank you. It's been really cool. Yeah, we should, yeah, well, thanks for the show. We should definitely give a shout out to the other diversity committee members, though. Oh, um, yeah. They're Ashley, Cynthia, Ryan, and Danielle. Um, they're awesome and often do more work than we do. Um, oh, yeah. Ashley is like a genius and a wizard <laughs> when it comes to blog posts. She's like, oh, here, nine blog posts that I came up right. with last yeah. night. <laughs> okay. Um, give us an order and, and we'll go for it. Um, so they're, they're just an Ashley awesome. Ashley Contos. Right? Yeah, Ashley yeah. Contos, Danielle yeah. Eli, um, Cynthia Zhang, and Ryan. There's too many Ryans. Uh, lackey. Um, yeah. they're, they're just, they're awesome people to work with. And even if we go months without emailing someone, we'll say, uh, hey, guys. Are we still What's around? Yeah. <laughs> so they're they're great to work with. So I just wanted to make sure that they got recognition. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and that that series of blog posts, uh, I, I hope that people who are listening go and seek out and read some of those because I, I you know we didn't accomplish as much as I'd hoped in our first year of a society. Turns out it's really hard to organize a brand <laughs> new group um, of people and, and get the journal out, which is a yeah, whole other story. Yeah. But we've we've made progress in a lot of ways. But I think for me, the thing that I'm most proud of is that that those series of blog posts that are out there. 
And uh, like Diego said, they will live on and they will be up there and people can leave comments on them and post links on Twitter and really engage with them more, I hope. Mm -hmm. But I'm very proud of the, the work that you and your team did on, on getting those out there. I'm, they exceeded my wildest expectations of what we could have done in the first year of that. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Awesome. Awesome. Andrea, where can people find you online other than through the email address that you gave Twitter? Um, I am on Twitter. Cool. Uh, <laughs> I think my Twitter handle is NMN80418. Really? Whatever's easy. at the very end of. Uh, <laughs> no, it's whatever's at the good end of neon. Good Old Neon. Oh, cool, cool. Oh. Very cryptic. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Nice. We'll link nice. to that in the show notes as well. Yeah. Cool. I don't Anywhere. Twitter well. I tweet Twitter. I don't tweet well. But, um. It's um, so it's Neil's initials plus the year he graduated high school, nineteen eighty, plus his batting average in. Oh, the, uh, nice. Yeah. American Legion. So I think it's four one eight. Four one eight. Yeah, he's pretty good. Cool. That's awesome. Cool. That's a good batting average. Yeah. I, I wouldn't know. I actually, I have, I have a, uh, I'm, I'm going to reveal this to you and you can choose not to put this on the podcast, but I have, um, a fairly large Wallace tattoo on my leg and it says, um, it's a bandana and it says not another word. And then there's an asterisk and I have a footnote on my foot of that little thing. Cause I couldn't resist it. It's so cheesy, but I had to do it. So it's there. I love it. I could have just looked at my foot, but yeah. yeah. <laughs> and that's your um, Twitter Twitter handle on your foot. Yep. Yeah. Cool. Cool. <laughs> cool. Awesome. Anywhere else you you um, can be found can be connected with that, yeah. Andrea. Uh, is that the best place? Yep. That's probably cool. it. Awesome. Cool. And how about you, Diego? Yeah, my Twitter's a bit easier to remember. <laughs> I think it's uh, Diego underscore Baez. <laughs> that's me. All right. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. So people, the people can find you there. Good stuff. Matt, right how about us? Where can people find find the show? I got the email address wrong, so I'll get it right. <laughs> it's concavityshow at Gmail, and Twitter's concavityshow. Um, Instagram, I think, is concavityshow yep. at concavityshow. Yeah, we pretty much just picked that one handle and went went with it. So That's pretty much it. So, <laughs> so yeah, but reach out to us. We, we've got um, s several people who emailed us after last episode, and we really... Um, appreciate those emails and enjoy when people um, hit us up with questions or comments. So please feel free to do that. I'll also put in a plug to say if you've never gone on Apple Podcasts or iTunes and rated or reviewed our show, it helps us um, move up into the rankings of like literature podcasts. And we would love that if you do like a mm -hmm. just rate yeah, it. Yeah, please do. Or, or give us a review. Preferably four out of five stars would be good. <laughs> <laughs> that was Dave's of. <laughs> That was Dave's paper <laughs> last year. It was partly about getting four out of five stars on a, from a from my mother-in-law. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I would expect my, if you're a mother-in-law listening, if you're my mother-in-law, give me the five stars. <laughs> yeah, we deeply appreciate that. It helps us reach a larger larger audience of people who might be interested in Wallace, and of course, that fits this discussion very well of of reaching a wider audience and and getting a, a proliferation of different interested people uh, in this community. So that'd be fantastic. Uh, as always, we want to thank Robin O'Neill and Parquet Courts for letting us use their art and song. And once again, Andrea, Diego, thank you guys so much for coming on. Thank yeah. you. All right. I won't see you 
at the ISU conference, unfortunately, because I'm Ooh. down here in New Zealand for a while, but hopefully the one after that. 